And we started last week on the second half of Romans. Uh, we've covered the first eight chapters, and so we've covered quite a bit of ground. Um, but to be honest, you can really summarize a lot of where we've been pretty quickly. Um, so some key things that we've seen in the first eight chapters that really Paul spends a lot of time unpacking. And even as we get into chapter nine, we're going to see some things that really tie in with other themes through the book. And so we started off in verses one through five. And so somebody told me that was here last week, uh, or if you we weren't here last week, take a second, just kind of glance over Romans nine, one through five. And let's kind of just review real quick. And so someone tell me, what did we get from Romans 9? What you looking for, bud? Oh, okay. Oh, you're good. You're good. Um, so Romans chapter 9. What did we talk about last week? We opened up the chapter. What were some key things that we kind of hit on or that the chapter kind of led us to kind of transition to? Last week, Romans chapter 9. Where, where did we go last week? What did we talk about? So someone either glance at the passage and tell me what jumps out to you as you look at those first five verses. I'll give you a hint. It's kind of in your notes, too. If you're not sure, looking at the passage and you're like, oh, I wish there was a piece of paper that could tell me what, what we talked about last week. Okay. Exactly, right? We really hit hard on the fact that Paul, the Apostle Paul, who's writing this letter to the church at Rome, is so passionate about his people, the Israelites, coming to know Christ, and he loves these people so much, he actually says, I'm willing to give up my own salvation, that if I could sever myself from Christ, if I could be cut off from Christ for all eternity, I'm willing to give up my own salvation so that my kinsmen, my, my people group will be able to come to know Christ as their Savior. And who did we tie that to? We said this was really similar to someone else in the Old Testament. Who else, in, who in the Old Testament offered something similar to God as far as a, a wanting to make a deal with God if it meant sparing the life of the Israelites? Okay, Moses, right? Way back in Exodus, he, he went before God after they sinned, and he said, hey, if you could, go ahead and put all that on me. Put all that sin and guilt and punishment, put it on me. I'll take that so that they're spared, right? But what does God say? No, I'm going to visit the sins. I'm going to put wrath on the sinner who committed the sin. Every sinner is responsible for their sin, unless we've received the atonement of Jesus Christ. And it's interesting, what Moses tried to do, what Paul offers to do, can't be done. And why is it that Moses, as great a man as he was, as godly as man as he was, Paul, who was a great man of God, why is it they could not fulfill that arrangement? Why could they not take the sins of the Israelites on themselves? Okay, they weren't perfect. Sandra, what were you going to say? Okay. What else would we need to do to be able to take their sin on me? If I wanted to take someone's sin on me, I have to be perfect. What does that mean? To be perfect. Holy? Chris, what would you say? Okay. You have to be Jesus Christ. Because here's the thing. You have to be God perfect, but a man so you could die. Right? You have to be the divinity, the perfection of God who is sinless. God is the only sinless one. Right? He is not mixed in and kind of down in the muck and the mire of sin. He is beyond that. He is outside of that. So you need the perfection of God 
but you need to be a man so that you could die as a sacrifice. Jesus Christ was the only God-man who could actually fulfill the plan of salvation. So Moses, with his great heart, wanting to die for the people, isn't going to work. Paul says, I would, I would lose my salvation if you could just give all their sin to me. It's not going to work. What does the Bible say? There's only one mediator between God and man, and it's the God-man, Christ Jesus. See, it's all connected to that reality that Jesus Christ is central. He is the only one that can pay for our sins. And so, but what we took away from that, I think it was Lance that mentioned this last week, we drew out of that the reality that what should my heart be towards, not necessarily even my own people group, okay? And I don't like saying necessarily nationality because really Scripture doesn't deal with nationality as much as it deals with people groups, right? More like, think more of the word tribes than nation, but when you think about that, what did we draw out of that? What should my heart be towards those outside of Christ? Like, what kind of love should I have for them? The same kind of love Paul has, right? And we challenged us a lot. We kind of challenged it last week that, that do I honestly, am I honestly broken for the lost? Like, have you ever even considered saying to God, even though you could never do it, it would never work or happen. Have you ever prayed to God, I would give up my salvation, my relationship with you, if this person or persons that I love so much would come to know Christ? Now, some of us maybe have prayed that prayer. Some of you may have loved ones that you've been so broken over, you've actually said, God, I don't even care if I get into heaven. If I know they're going, I'm good. You, maybe you've thought something like that. At the least, we should be willing to at least love them enough to share Christ with them. I kind of think back to when I was in college, and I've shared this before with like some of our men's groups and maybe even in, in Bible study in here. We were in this Bible study with all, there was like 15 guys or so in our dorm. We were all in this one guy's room and we were doing this Bible study and it was, we were talking about things like dying for your faith, right? Because this is not too long after Columbine and, and all these kind of things. And people were like, oh man, I would die for Jesus. I would die for Jesus. And I remember thinking this, this in my own life, was that something I would do? Would I really give my life for Jesus? Would I really say I'm a believer if I knew it was going to mean taking, somebody would take my life? But as we're talking about that, one of the guys in the group, his name's Tony, he said, you know, I don't think any of us would really die for Christ. And we were all kind of like, what are you talking about? Like, we don't know our hearts. And he said, well, he said, I don't think we can really talk about dying for Christ unless we're actually living for Christ already. Now, that was one of those comments that will always stick with me because it hit me right between the eyes. We're all like, oh, yeah, I'd take a bullet for Jesus. I would die for my faith. But if I love Jesus so much that I would die for him, do I actually love him enough to live for him? To actually go out into the world and make it known I'm a believer. So many Christians nowadays, it's this closet religion. It's this, well, I'm a believer, but I don't want anyone to know. Paul's saying, no, I would do anything for the lost to come to know Christ. And so we have to get that as kind of the opening heart of Paul as he writes this chapter, chapter 9. And so let's jump into the next section. We're going to read verses 6 through 13. 6 through 13. We see God's faithfulness here in your notes. And so verses 6 through 13. If I can get a volunteer to read, um, let's see, maybe 6 through 9 and 10 through 13. So 6 through 9, if I can get a volunteer to read that. Anyone want to read Romans 9, 6 through 9? Lance, cool. And then 10 through 13. Someone that would like to read 10 through 13. Going once, going twice, 
Oh, Keith, I was going to make Greg do it. So, okay, but you go ahead. No, you go ahead. You're good, Keith. So, all right, Lance, nice and loud. Okay, so there's a lot going on in these few verses here. So I want to unpack this a little bit here, but the title of this section is God's faithfulness. Now remember, we talked about this last week too. As the book of Romans is unfolding, we said, how are some of the Jews, not Jews that are believers, but unsaved Jews, how are they viewing the Apostle Paul as he's writing this book of Romans? Is this being read in the church at Rome? All the things that Paul has been saying, how might they view Paul? What are they thinking of Paul as they're going through Paul's teaching here? As a Jewish person, not saved. We said last week they might have these kind of thoughts and feelings towards Paul. Okay, hatred. Why do they hate Paul? Okay, because he's changing everything, right? No, no, no. Don't do the law anymore. Do this. And in fact, if someone's telling you to do the law, they're wrong. Okay, what else are they thinking towards Paul? They hate him because he's changing everything. How about the fact that he's a traitor? Paul was one of them, right? And he wasn't just one of them. He was like the best of the best of them. And now he, this great ruler, leader in the Jewish religion, is now turned completely 180, going the opposite direction towards Jesus Christ. And so they they hate him. They see him as an enemy. He's a traitor, right? Right? But what else in relation to the Jews, to God, might the Jews be feeling? As Paul's been saying all these things about, no, 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 it's not this anymore. It's faith in Christ. It's faith in Christ. It's not the law. It's faith in Christ. What might the Jews be thinking about God's view of them or how how the relationship with God is changing? How might the Jews be feeling there? Okay. God's going back on them. Sandra? Yeah. What was, what was the blessing that he gave Abraham? What's the, what's the great blessing that God gives Abraham in Genesis 12? He promises them a couple things. What are some of the things he promises them? He says, I will make you a great nation, right? So you'll be a great nation, a great people. I'm going to bless you, right? And what's the blessing going to be? I'm going to bring you into a land, okay, the promised land. And then the world's going to be blessed through you, right? There's a people, there's a blessing, and there's a land. Now we get to this idea of the New Testament church, and they're looking at God going, did you quit on us? Did you give up on us? Are you not even faithful to us anymore? Have you turned your back on us? You're not fulfilling the promises? And so remember, Paul starts off by saying, I have a heart for Israel. I love the people of God, the the Israelites. I want them to come to know Christ. He actually says, I'm not lying, right? Right? 
Remember that? We talked about last week. Verse 1 of chapter 9. I say the truth in Christ. I lie not. This is truth. I want you to know this. I want you to know Christ. But then he moves into reminding them that God has not given up on them, that God has not quit on them, that he is still faithful as he's always been. So where does he take them to remind them that God was faithful and will be faithful? Some of these names we just read, where'd we go? Look at the passage. What are some of the people being talked about in verses 6 through 13? Give me some of the names we see. Okay, Abraham. Who else? Isaac. What's that? Who else? Sarah. Okay. Rebecca. Jacob and Esau. Right? Where does this take us? Where are we going right now in the Bible? What book? We're going all the way back to Genesis. Back to the beginning, right? What are these individuals? Abraham, Isaac, what do we call those guys in Genesis? There's a kind of a big fancy word. The patriarchs, right? They're kind of the founders of the Jewish faith. Who's missing on the list, by the way? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and then who's the last one mentioned in Genesis? He's not necessarily considered a patriarch all the time. Joseph, right? Joseph's in, in Genesis. He ends the book of Genesis, right? So when you see this idea, uh, Paul's taking them all the way back to Genesis. And he's saying, listen, let me remind you of the beginning of this. And as he's going through here, he's reminding them of the things God did. What else do we see here? Talking about a seed. Did you catch that? Talking about the seed. Now, what is the great blessing? We know this as a New Testament believer. What is the great blessing that God moved through the line of Abraham to bless the whole world? What was that blessing? What came of the line of Abraham that was the great blessing to all the people of the world? Jesus Christ, right? You can trace it all the way back. Okay, Matthew does a great job of this in the genealogy of Christ. We see this connection, the seed that would come. By the way, where did that seed even, where was that seed promised? Going back to Genesis 3, right? Woman, there would be a seed from the woman, right? This promise of a Messiah. And so Paul's reminding them, listen, this is what God said would happen. And he's saying all that to say this, it's going to continue. It's not, God's not forgotten about you. So let's look at this a little bit and kind of break it down. Paul reminds the Jews of God's faithfulness to them in and through the Old Testament. There's a phrase that we see in verse, uh, let's see, verse 6. It says, not as though the word of God hath taken none effect. Taken none effect could better be understood as fallen to the ground or failed. Fallen to the ground or failed. Basically, it fell to the ground, useless. It doesn't do anything. It didn't produce anything. He's saying, listen, the word of God is doing something, has done something, and will continue to do something. God's purposes have and will continue to come to be. Nothing can stop his plan. God is faithful. There's a phrase in this passage um, it says here in verse 6, For they are not all Israel which are of Israel. Because remember, again, Paul's saying it's faith in Christ, it's faith in Christ. But yet there's a lot of Jews that are saying, no, no, I'm a Jew, I'm an Israelite, so I'm good. I'm, I'm good because I'm of this heritage or this line. And Paul makes a statement that says there's two types of Israelites. There's the true Israelites, and then there's those who are not of Israel. This isn't really unfamiliar to us, because we've already talked on this a little bit in Romans. In your notes, at least I think this is in there, not all Israel, which are Israel, that phrase. 
basically means that it's not only Abraham's physical descendants, but also his spiritual descendants through the work of Christ. Romans chapter 2, verses 28 through 29. If someone could go there real quick, just maybe one person and read that for us. Uh, we're going to kind of reference that as an example of what Paul's talking about now to remind us that this isn't new. Uh, Romans 2, 28 through 29. If I can get a volunteer to read that for us, give us a little context here. Romans 2, 28 through 29. Greg, he actually volunteered that time. Awesome. Okay, so what's Paul talking about here? What did the Jews believe was getting them merit or favor with God? The Jews believed this was giving them merit with God. What outward symbol did they put a lot of weight in as far as believing that was the, the key? Circumcision, right? And so much so, Paul is actually saying what? What's Paul's point? It's not the outward, but the what? And he says, you know what a real Jew is? Somebody who really believes in God and trusts in God and the promises of God? It's not somebody who just does the outward things and the showings, but somebody who's what? Circumcised of the hearts. So you see, Paul's already introduced this idea that, that everyone who claims to be a Jew is not necessarily a Jew. So when he says this here, not everyone who says they're of Israel is really of Israel. It's not new. It's, it's actually kind of a, a theme he's already introduced. And in fact, Jesus says this, right? He even identifies that there's those that are genuinely Israelites and those that are just kind of putting on a show, right? So this is not new, but again, it's something to be reminded with here. Then he goes on to say, list some more of the promises and all that's happening here. And then we get to a verse that's caused a lot of debate, a lot of uh, kind of maybe some confusion for some. He says here in verse 11, and if you notice the parenthesis, why is that there in verse 11, you think? The whole verse has a parenthesis around it. Why is that there? Why do you think verse 11 has a parenthesis like that? What do you think Paul's doing? Why, does he, why is that verse there like that? It's not a trick question or anything. When you read verse 10, what does verse 10 say? And not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one, even by our father Isaac. Verse 11 says, For the children being not yet born, neither having done any good or evil, that, he, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him that calleth. This is Paul kind of explaining what's being talked about here. Verse 10 talks about Rebekah having a son and conce conceiving and having a child, right? He actually, actually had more than one. But when you see that there, then you see verse 12, it was said unto her, the elder shall serve the younger. So it's kind of explaining what's going on in the passage and what's going on before and after. So when you see this, you understand that this elder shall serve the younger who's the younger, between the brothers that Jacob and Esau, who's the younger? Jacob, okay. What is Jacob known for? Tell me a little bit about Jacob. What's that? Okay, stole the birthright. Okay. What, what, what's Jacob kind of portrayed as in Scripture? What, Kelly? 
trickster, right? He's a trickster. He tricks people, okay? Tell me a little bit about Esau. What do we know about Esau? He was a hunter, okay? He was a manly man, okay? I just always imagine Esau with a lot of body hair. I don't know why, but... But why do we think he has a lot of body hair? Okay, when, when he went to his father, when Jacob was deceiving his father, what did he do to, to hide his, who he really was? Right? He put the hair on his arm, and he kind of put his arm out there for his father to feel because his father was not able to see real well. So he steals the birthright. So what happens then between Jacob and Esau? Their relationship is, is great, right? They're just really good friends. What happens? What does Jacob do? His mom says, you got to go. So Jacob flees. Esau, does he let it go? No, he comes after him, right? So we see this dynamic. And so there's this back and forth. There's, there's an animosity between the two brothers. But when we get to verse 13, this is the verse that people have really gotten hung up on and, and taken to a lot of different degrees. As it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. And who's speaking there? God is saying, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. And so in your notes here, uh, that statement has caused much debate among the church. Is God saying that he hates Esau and actually hated him before he was born? Because what did verse 11 tell us? When does God decide, seemingly from the text, that he loves one and hates the other? What does verse 11 say? Before they're even born, God makes this decision. That's kind of what we're getting at here. So here's the issue we run into. So before they were born, so did Esau have a chance to sin in the flesh and deny God and all of that if this decision was made before he was born? Nope. So what in the world is being talked about here? So uh, this is, again, before birth, so they have not merited or earned love or hatred. They've not done anything to gain one or the other. So I want to give you some things that people will suggest this means. Then we'll kind of unpack what it's actually talking about and what we kind of could look at as an option for understanding and interpreting this text. So you can jot this down as a reference verse. Luke 14.26. Luke 14.26. Uh, the word hatred or hated in verse uh, 13 in Romans 9 is the exact same as the word hate in Luke 14.26. Luke 14, 26. Um, and, you know, I wasn't going to do this, but we've got time. Would someone like to read that for us? Luke 14, 26. Someone want to go there? Luke 14, verse 26. And we're going to read that for reference, kind of to compare this word hatred here. Lance. Okay, so that's one that kind of throws us a little bit, right? What does it sound like Jesus is saying? If I want to be a follower of Christ, I have to hate not just my parents, everybody, and including hate myself, okay? So, but what do we say about that verse? Has anybody ever looked at that verse or had someone teach him about that verse to how we actually can look at that where God isn't necessarily saying, I should, quote, hate my mom and dad? What do we say that verse is actually kind of encouraging us to do? Okay, love Jesus more than love a family member. Have you ever heard it said, we should love Jesus so much that our love for our mom and dads look like hate? That's one way that I've heard that taught. I don't know if that's the best way to explain that. But that word hate in that verse 
is the exact same word used in this verse in Romans 9.13. So some have suggested that when God says, I've loved Jacob and I've hated Esau, that our English translation isn't accurate in that because hate isn't the best word. Some have suggested it really is more like saying, I've loved him less. Now, could that be what it means? Well, that sure seems like what Luke 14 is encouraging us to look at it as. Not so much I hate them, but compared to my love for God, I love them less than my love for God. But again, if that's the case, that brings up some questions. So now we're saying that God has one love for one person and a lesser love for another person. Some have suggested it means love less. Some have suggested that this is evidence that God chooses one group for heaven or salvation and another for hell or wrath based solely on his own choice. That this is kind of the, the picture of uh, Jacob is the one that is chosen unto redemption. Esau is the one chosen unto death and hell. And it's okay because it's just God's choice. This is kind of where, and this passage actually, um, if you've ever studied or heard of Calvinism, this is a passage that Calvinists like to go to. This is a verse that was given to me a lot by some Calvinist kids at BBC when we would talk about all these kind of things. They'd always go to this verse. Well, look, God is clearly deciding before they're born one person he hates and one person he loves. Bible says it. So some have suggested this is actually referring to God choosing, predetermining one group over another, one for salvation, one for hell. Another view, and I know you guys love this when I do this to you, and I give you all these views that people believe and hold to. Uh, another view that seems to have some merit or some traction among some is that this is not speaking to individual election as much as it is national election. So not election like I elect you to president. Okay, in a sense it's like that because it's choosing. But this idea of election is not dealing with Jacob and Esau as individuals, but as nations. Okay? Uh, real quick, let me just interject this real quick to get, make sure we're all on the same page. Somebody tell me, what, is it, what does election mean? I just kind of gave you the idea of what it means. But biblically, what does election mean? Choosing, okay? What do we mean by that in, in relation to salvation? I kind of told you that God, some, some people believe God chooses or elects some based on his own choice. What's the other way that we can be elected in Scripture? What's another form of election in Scripture unto salvation? So one way is I do nothing. God just predetermines. He just chooses because for no reason other than his own choice that I go to heaven and this person doesn't. What's the other way that I'm elected according to Scripture? Okay, there you go. So one is this idea of just random, I call it random, but random God choosing just because of whatever. He just chooses because that's what he chooses. The other view of election is called foresight or foreknowledge election. God knows before the foundation of the world who would put their faith and trust in Christ when presented with the gospel. At that moment in eternity past, he elects those individuals. He knew you would be saved before you were saved. That's the idea. He doesn't force us to be saved, but he knows all things. He is God. So God, knowing I would receive Christ in eternity past, I'm elected back because of the foreknowledge of God for when I was saved at 16. So some have said, based on this passage, 
what kind of election are we looking at here? The reason some that would say that God just chooses is because, well, it's before they were born. But again, you could say, well, God knowing all things, he makes this decision before they were born, but he also knew what they would do when they were full grown. He knew what decisions they would make. And also carry it to this idea of what I believe is speaking about here is not even so much individual election, but national election. So in your notes, I gave you some information on this to kind of explain this a little bit, what we're referring to. Romans 9, 13. Uh, you have this in your notes, correct? Nod at me if you have this in your notes. Yeah, okay. Romans 9, 13 is a reference to Malachi 1, verses 2 through 5, and refers to nations. So I know you guys have been doing a lot of scripture reading. I appreciate you guys having your Bibles with you. I need another person to volunteer. Malachi chapter 1, Old Testament. Someone turn there. Malachi chapter 1, verses 2 through 5. When somebody's there, just give me a holler and we'll have you read it. I think Abby's. Didn't I see Abby? Aren't you there? No? No? Okay. Unless she actually wants to read. Sandra, awesome. Malachi chapter 1, verses 2 through 5. Okay, so does anyone catch, what is Esau called in that passage? Esau's referred to as a nation. What's the nation he's called? The nation of Edom or the Edomites, okay? And when you think about this idea that Paul's referencing Malachi chapter 1, he's saying to the Jewish people, remember this, the Jewish audience, there's the nation of Israel and Jacob, right? Isn't that what Jacob's name becomes? Doesn't, doesn't Jacob wrestle with God? Becomes the nation of Israel, right? Doesn't mean he was perfect, but he's chosen by God. Remember that. God is working through Jacob, through the line of Israel. Then you've got his brother Esau, who becomes the nation of the Edomites. And they're saying, with these two lines, I'm blessing one line, I'm not blessing another. One line has my blessing, one line has my wrath. So when we think about that idea, that's what Paul's referring to here. Jacob is Israel. And Esau is Edom. The idea is that God chose or elected the nation of Israel for his purposes, while the nation of Edom was under wrath. So considering the context to the Jews, reminding them of God's commitment to his purpose to them, I'm going to read just a little bit of what uh, one author says about this passage. And it's a little bit lengthy, so bear with me, but I want to read through this. And if anybody wants a copy, I can give it to you. Um, so let me just read this to you and it gives you a little more context to the idea. So, considering the context, God loving Jacob and hating Esau has nothing to do with the human emotions of love and hate. It has everything to do with God choosing one man and his descendants and rejecting another man and his descendants. God chose Abraham out of all the men in the world. Think about that. Who came to who between God and Abraham? God came to Abraham, right? 
And then God says, I'm going to do this, Abraham. I'm going to make you a people and put you in a land, and there's going to be a blessing. What did Abraham have to do with that covenant as far as, did he earn that covenant? Did he earn that promise from God? After God makes the promise, is Abraham perfect and keeps the covenant completely? No. In fact, what does he do when he gets to Egypt? What does Abraham do when he gets to Egypt? And he's fearful that they're going to take, kill him and take his wife. He lies. Is this your wife? And he says, it's my sister. Okay? So when you see this here, God chose Abraham because he just chose Abraham to say, you're the people group I'm going to use. Now, later on, we see there are conditional covenants. We talked about this last week that God puts into place with the law. The people broke the law, disobeyed the law. There was consequences. The people followed the law and did what God said. There was blessings. So there's conditional covenants, and then there's this ultimate covenant that God says, I'm just going to do this. You're going to be unfaithful, but I'm still going to do this because my plan will come to be. And so that's what we see the author saying here. The Bible very well could say, and I like the way this author puts this, the Bible very well could say, Abraham I loved and other men I hated. Right? If we think about it that way, Abraham I've loved and other men I've hated, if we're using the same idea of what we're looking at. God chose uh, Abraham's son Isaac instead of Abraham's son Ishmael. The Bible very well could say, Isaac I've loved and Ishmael I hated. Romans chapter 9 makes it abundantly clear that loving Jacob and hating Esau was entirely related to which of them God chose. Hundreds of years after Jacob and Esau had died, the Israelites and the Edomites became bitter enemies. The Edomites often aided Israel's enemies in attacks on Israel Esau's descendants brought God's curse upon themselves. Genesis 27, 29 tells Israel, My na many, no, I'm sorry, may nations serve you and peoples bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers and may the sons of your mother bow down to you. May those who curse you be cursed and those who bless you be blessed. So again, we're not talking about God kind of just randomly saying, oh, I just don't like Esau and I like Jacob. Remember, God is a God that knows all things. God hardened Pharaoh's heart, but Pharaoh also hardened Pharaoh's heart. God, knowing all things, knowing there would be no repentance, can predetermine, pre-before it happens, say, you're not going to repent. So therefore, it's impossible to repent. We have to understand, we have to look at this from God's point of view. And so again, this verse has caused a lot of issues. But we really can't go through the book of Romans to this point and honestly believe that Paul is suggesting that God is randomly choosing someone to wrath and someone to salvation. He's offering salvation to all, but he merely knows who will receive and who will reject. So saying all of that, any questions about verses 6 through 13 of Romans 9? Kind of giving you all that information. I know it was a lot, but any questions about that? about the issues of Jacob and Esau and all of that. Let me ask it this way too, so we're on the same page. And I, I kind of preached a message on this a while ago. Does God love sinners? Yes or no? Okay. Does the Bible also say that God hates sinners? Okay. The book of Psalms says many times that God actually has a hatred for those who practice sin, which we call those people... Sinners. So how can we reconcile the love of God for sinners and the hatred of God for sinners? How do we reconcile that? Well, we don't have to worry about figuring that out. What, what, is, what image do we have? What, what point in history 
for us was that reconciled at the cross of Jesus Christ. It's amazing. The cross of Christ is the greatest illustration for the love of God for sinners, but the hatred of God for sinners. Because at the same moment the grace of God is poured out for all the world, the wrath of God is poured out for all the world. And so it's an amazing thing to think about that God, when we see this here, we have a hard time when we read things like God hates whatever. But when you understand what is being talked about here, it's not just emotion of human hate and human love. It's so much more than that. So let's look at the next section here real quick. Uh, Romans 14 through, or verses 14 through 18 of Romans 9. So 14 through 18. Can I get another volunteer? This may be the last volunteer. Romans 9, 14 through 18. Uh, I don't know, Evan. I'd like to call on you, but I'm not sure, bud. That might be a little rough. Uh, TJ. Okay, so we're going back and forth here, right? We talked about Pharaoh a little bit. Here we see God's righteousness. God's righteousness. After Paul says that he loved Jacob and hated Esau, and he made a choice of choosing one line over another, what could one of the accusations be against God? Well, that's not fair, right? That's not fair. That's not right. That's not, that's not okay that you do that. But the truth is, God is completely within his rights and authority as creator God to show mercy to whomever he chooses. If God decides to only show mercy to this or that group, he is not unrighteous because he is God. We are the sinners that are unable to expect anything from him but judgment. One way I heard an illustration about this would be I heard about a man who went to a mall. And this man had a bunch of money. And he just starts randomly handing money to people in the mall. And it gets out that this guy only went to one mall and did this. And other people were saying, well, you know what? That's not really fair. He should come to the mall or to the stores near my house so I can go get some money. That's not fair that he chose to only go to one mall and hand out money to those people. And the idea here is that it's totally fair for that guy to do whatever he wants to with his money. Right? Like, it's not, I can't tell that guy to do this or that with his money. It's fair that he does whatever he wants. In the same way that it's true he can do whatever he wants with his own money, it is also true that God can do whatever he wants with his mercy. God is the owner of righteousness and mercy. He can give it to whomever he wants or withhold it from whoever he wants. It may seem unfair to some or restrictive or inclusive but my opinion really doesn't matter because the mercy isn't mine, it's God's. So when you look at this passage here, do you see what he says about Pharaoh? What does he say about Pharaoh? He says here in verse uh, 17, what did he do with Pharaoh? He says, I raised you up. Do you see that? Why did he raise up Pharaoh? 
Basically what I'm saying is he, he allowed him to become the Pharaoh. That's what God's kind of saying here. Why did God allow that to happen? Referring all the way back, now this is the same Pharaoh with, with who? Moses, children of Israel, right? Why did he allow him to come to power and to be in power and to be the position he was in? What does the verse say? Why did God allow that to happen? To show his power. Basically, it's like this. God could not set them free from Pharaoh if Pharaoh wasn't in charge, right? So through Pharaoh, he worked through this man. Is Pharaoh a believer in God? Is he submitted to God's authority? Is he saying, yes, God, I worship with you all that I am? No, he's hardened his heart to God. But yet what happens? God is still using him. Now, this is a great encouragement to us, and it should be, especially right now with political season upon us. Okay? I'm so thankful that so many people have dropped out of the race because I'm seeing less and less commercials. Praise the Lord. And it was getting ridiculous. Okay? But you know what the reality is? We may have somebody that comes to a level of authority in our country as president, and we may disagree with them. We might think they're, they're not even saved. They don't even follow after God's ways. But God says, watch this. Watch me use this person and bless you and raise up my church and glorify me. How about Nebuchadnezzar? Who allowed Nebuchadnezzar to come to power in Babylon? God did. And then God worked through Nebuchadnezzar in all those things. Now, here's the difference of what I'm saying. I'm not saying God made Pharaoh imprison the people of God. Pharaoh made that choice, right? I'm not saying God made Nebuchadnezzar do this or that, or God made this heathen nation do this or that. He is merely able to work through, Romans 8, all things, right? All things. And so we see God's righteousness, and we see God's faithfulness to his people. The Jews may be questioning God's righteousness and his faithfulness to them. But he, God is, or Paul is saying, God has never changed. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And he will be faithful as he's always been. And so hopefully that's an encouragement to you guys tonight. Um, let's do this. We're going to close in prayer. Uh, but before that, are there any questions? Does anyone have any questions or comments or thoughts as we kind of walk through a lot of material tonight? Questions, comments, or thoughts? All right, let's pray, guys. Father, we thank you so much for tonight. We thank you for your grace and your love in our life. Father, we just, we're so thankful and humbled by the reality that you can work in all situations. That there is nothing that we go through in this life that you cannot move in and through to bless us, that others would come to know you, and that you would be glorified in all things. Father, we love you, and we thank you for your sovereignty over us, and we thank you for the free will that you give unto us that we can choose to respond faithfully to you. But Father, I'm so thankful that when I choose to be unfaithful and I take my eyes off of you, that you never turn your back on me. You never turn your back on those that have called out to you as Savior. And so Father, in all these things, I pray that we would just be so thankful and just be, just be humbled under the sheer weight of all that you are orchestrating in our world and in, the, in, in really the universe around us. Lord, all these things that have come to be, you knew before the foundations of the world would take place. So Lord, give us a great confidence in you a great hope to trust in you and know that you are in, in control of all these things. And Father, we thank you for all of this, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.
All right. So God bless you guys. Thank you for being here tonight. Uh, I'll say we'll see you Wednesday, but just kind of keep your eye on Facebook and on your phone and the app, and we'll let you know if anything changes.